What's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to another episode of the North North Leeds Jits podcast. We should have made it easy to say. We should have, yeah. We should have made it like a two-word thing. And it I've not been, been very good with my words today, actually. Just in just in general, <laughs> struggled on the kids' podcast as well. Yeah, you did, mate, yeah. uh, this evening we're joined by Matt, um, and Matt is certainly part of our community, and and we're going to do quite a few of these kind of community-style podcasts with members and different people. I guess that enter our circles or um, come our way. Matt's got a great story. I've heard a little bit about from from Mike, but uh, hopefully we'll get the kind of the absolute authentic version today. The gory details. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, so we're just kind of go get into it. But um, just as a quick overview, Matt, like, do you want to just tell the listeners kind of like what you do and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, born and bred in Leeds. A professional football coach and business owner, 34 years old, I think now. 34. Yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah, I am. Is that I like Mike's yes. 42? <laughs> yeah, so the, the grey hairs are not there yet. I'm certainly receiving. Um, but yeah, so I, I've worked in, and operated in Leeds as a professional football coach for the past sort of, 12 years and uh, run a business called Catalan Soccer, which is a kids' football academy. And then there's a couple of other side projects that I do as well as an entrepreneur. But the the, uh, the bread and butter is the football school. Yep, and you're uh, Orson's coach, who we just had on the podcast. If people have heard that one, so yes, Orson Orson Bates, quite the uh, well, yeah, quite, sure, quite the apprentice. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about Orson. Um, so yeah, you're from Leeds. Which part of Leeds did you grow up in? So, well, it was a mixed upbringing, really. So the um, the first family home was in Harehills, which is LS8. Right. Um, and then we moved. I think when I was six or seven years old to round here, just on the outskirts. So a place called uh, Gledhow, for those of you that know it. Yep. Which again, LSA, uh, not far from Moortown, and not far from um, Coach Mike, and where he lives now, just next to the park. For sure. And did you grow up, uh, you got siblings, or by yourself? Yeah, so two brothers. All uh, right. Younger brother, Ben, and older brother, Dan. Ah, you're in the middle. Middle child. How was that? Do you get along with your siblings, or? <laughs> we've gone deep pretty quick straight for the kill well we, we um, as a very tight family unit we spent a lot of time together as kids mm. and we're quite close in age too so Dan is 18 months older than me and Ben is two years younger so we were we were near enough in, in age brackets to, to play with each other mm-hmm. and with that came quite a fierce Sibling rivalry, right? You competitive guys. Yeah, we we had football really as a as a big staple of our childhood and something we spent a lot of time doing together. And because we were old enough to compete, we we were very competitive. You know, I think if there had been a, a bigger age gap, I think as an older sibling, you give a bit more empathy and go a little bit easier on someone who's never going to win. But we were we were close enough that we sort of didn't hold back. I understand and, what uh, you mean. Ben, yeah. ben, the younger brother, he he got the. Yeah, the brunt end of that. Right. You know, been stuck in goal and uh, <laughs> lo- losing games like 15-0 and being persuaded that it should continue to play for 
yeah. the older brother's gratification. So yeah, <laughs> so the yeah the, the sibling stuff was um, again we, we were very very close, spent a lot of time together, mm-hmm. and um, my own mum and dad ran a business, which meant that you know it was sort of fifty two weeks a year, every weekend they'd be at, at the shop, and we spent a lot of time sat in, you know, sat at the back of the shop playing football under each other's feet. So. Yes. Do you remember who got into football first out of the three of you? It was it was simultaneous, really. You know, we, we all. I think Ben was when Ben was five. I first started to play for a team, so I was seven. Dan was eight. So I think I think maybe it was me, and then Dan was the next one to to join mm. an organised Sunday team, and then Ben naturally just followed through. Uh, and with you being quite competitive, uh, who was who was the best back then? <laughs> Well, I and mean, if you ask anybody, they'll say that I'm the best, or I was the best. Um, but no, we, we just had different traits, different attributes. Yeah. I think um, to say that any, any one of the three of us was the best of being an overgeneralisation, really. You know, Dan was a bit bigger and stockier than me and probably a little bit more bold and brave in competitive games. I was more skillful. You know, Ben was a very generous, creative type of player. Mm. So three very different types of footballers. Just Jump, good, at, good at different things. Right, jumping wildly ahead now, yeah. we'll go back. Has seeing like your other brothers having different styles of like creative football, does that influence how you work now? Did like does has that helped you grow? Like being able to see different types of players and stuff. Uh, well, probably not in the in the childhood context. Really, mm. I think as a kid, you sort of do your own thing and do what you're good at. And it's only really when when you become a little bit older that maybe you you're probably clever enough to assimilate traits from other people. You know, to observe and right. analyse what they do and try and bring that into your game. I think more in more general terms, I think having, and this is probably true of my sort of business experience <clears> over the past <throat> 10, 12 years, having different types of people around you and having that holistic um, depth of talent in a team or in a you know group of coaches, for example, I think it's sort of quintessential really and a big part of your development as a professional but also as a, as a business owner or as a, as a leader or manager in any team, I think you can definitely learn from the best of different types of people. Yeah. So, so tell me about, you got into your first team, and was that like, was that a big thing for you? Was, was that like a big team in Leeds? Was that just like a... Well, it was difficult. Um, it was difficult, and it's a great question. That opens up probably a really good sort of line of conversation, really, around young kids and their experience in football. When I was seven, I was very small. I, I'm only sort of five foot... Six, five foot seven now as a you know fully Sorry, grown you, man. This is the five foot seven crew over here. <laughs> five foot eight mate was in the Yorkshire Post today. So I saw Sarah was uh, sceptical on that. So. They, they also said it was forty three. Don't, don't believe everything that you read. Fake news. Fake news. Yeah. So as a seven year old, I was very, I was very small, and it was difficult to, you know, with, with the selection pressures on on managers, you know, from professional right through to junior football. There's a pressure there to pick the kids that are the most effective in games because winning is important. And you know, winning for junior team managers in particular, it cements their authority, it keeps parents off the back, and it's the easiest and quickest way to acquire coaching life and you know, putting smiles on, on, on the faces of the people that are there. So as a seven-year-old, yeah, it was it was difficult to to get game time. The the formats in football have since changed. But back then, you know, as a seven, eight-year-old kid, you, you could be playing eleven-a-side football, 
on a full-size pitch. Right, that's, that's, a, that's a big way for a seven-year-old and eight-year-old. Yeah, hundred percent. So you know you've got these little legs running around trying the best, and yeah. they're good on the ball, but you, it was impossible to get the ball sometimes, and the physical mismatch made it a really difficult few years on the competitive side. And I'd probably say two of my younger brothers, well, Ben, and for lots of smaller kids, it tends to be the playground and the street, mm. and those other more natural child-led habitats where you, you're afforded the opportunity you know to to develop and be involved and you know regulate your own your own outcomes yeah whereas when you're forced into the, the adult dominated arena which is the competitive games programs and the grassroots teams it's almost through the formats the referee and the pitch sizes and the other variables around the sport it's, it's taken out of your hands really you know you're given a position you could be the opposite number to a, a kid who's a foot and a half taller than you with a three stone advantage. And you guys in Jiu-Jitsu will probably appreciate more than more than most yeah. what those types of bias can do and how <clears throat> difficult it can make competition. So yeah, so difficult first few years. Um, there was a, a few teams that I moved around, uh, Wigton Moore, Seacroft Colts, Whitkirk. For anybody that's from Leeds, probably you know names today of clubs that they'll recognise and may have even seen on the local parks but yeah that was that was the initial journey and through until the age of I think probably 10 11 that, that's I was a bit of a journeyman around right okay kids football in Leeds and just before you go on there as as you know around that age did you already have an idea in your head like what you wanted to be like this is a silly story for me but like when I was about that age I wanted to be a blacksmith <laughs> so wow. like, don't know why but it's like weaponry I guess yeah, but, love style. yeah exactly um, <laughs> excellent to be honest I, I can't remember I can't remember having that long term aspiration I think I think as a kid trying to put yourself back back there in that mindset I think I, I used to just sort of live in the moment mm day to day I never thought too much about you know what, what I would be in 10 years or yeah. what I'd like to do for a job I think I was so immersed in the in the gratification of playing football and being around football it, it sort of dominated lifestyle right okay you know choices in childhood how I spent spare time so okay. probably too busy living it right yeah, to think about ever not doing it or, or being in a position where I'd have to choose something else. Yeah, so, so was football, did it kind of just com- consume your life? Was it like everything you thought about? Like, were you also like good academically as well or in school? Or, yeah. Or how was well, that? Again, good question. So the football was was pretty much everything and, and it really took off between the age of sort of 10 and, 10 and 14. I think prior to that, although I'd you know, played for teams and things such as that. The experience at those teams wasn't wasn't the best and the most rewarding. So lacking a bit of fulfilment in the football domain, I spent a bit of time playing with you know sort of friends and brothers in the garden and things. But yeah, it was um, there was another passion in childhood which was um, a component of the schoolwork, which was maths that I was doing at the time. So I was a little bit of um, an addict mm. on maths. All right. Having a bit of an addictive personality, it definitely, they were probably the early sprouts of those character traits. But like um, Orson, very similar. Yes. In a, in, a, in a way. He's very kind of maths kind of focused too, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder where the kind of crossover, maybe we'll get into that later, but that kind of passion for football and outcome and then maths kind of mm-hmm. 
maybe there's something there to kind of explore. Yeah, there, there, there could be an overlap, um, <laughs> whether it's the logic of maths or the, the binary nature of right and wrong in maths. Yeah. You know, kids that are quite rule-abiding individuals and quite orthodox in the thinking and, and maybe drawn toward maths because it's very black and white. There's, there's, different there's ways an outcome, of, right? There's an outcome to it, right? Different ways to the outcome, but, but one outcome. Yeah. Um, yeah, until they start multiplying minus numbers and stuff and, you know, <laughs> going to calculus and stuff where you might get a different outcome from the same input and really advanced mathematics. As a kid, you know, through your basic times tables, it's, I think, memorization. Maths is a subject initially of memorization. And then it, it probably evolves from that you know, where the problem-solving aspect comes in later on. But uh, maths was a huge thing. And what I used to do was actually sneak the books home as a nine-year-old. So actually, the first time I ever stole anything was a maths textbook from school. <laughs> wow. Because I wanted to... I used to play a trick on the teacher. So I, I was always driven to finish first as well. This is the point I was going to make. It's like, it's outcome-based, right? Yeah. What I see in Orson, so it's a jump at... Uh, a bit of a tangent here, but because it's outcome based, you can you can win. Because if you do your answers first, and you're the winner, correct. and they're all correct, you're the winner, right? When English is different, because it takes you've got to be a bit more kind of thoughtful about it, and there can be different interpretations of the same text. But if you're given ten questions in maths, there's ten correct answers for a child, and if you do them all correctly in first, you win. Yeah, football, you score more goals, you win. Yeah, and I think there's a direct correlation with that. We're also, I don't know if that's the same yeah. for you, but. When yeah. I think about it, I, I see the same yeah. thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's less subjective, isn't it? I think that the artistic subjects, such as art, drama, English, where, the, where there is perhaps more interpretation, um, certainly at the elementary level of that subject, um, talking about maths here, I think um, there, was, there was something in that. So what I used to do was sneak the books home, do the work in my exercise book, mm. anticipate the next day that we were doing that chapter or topic, the teacher would set the work, everybody would sort of open up and start to do the sums. And I'd, I'd give it three or four minutes <laughs> so it was sort of plausible and then put the hand up and say, so I've finished. And the teachers couldn't believe it. But the, there's a huge, I think, huge aspect of that. There was definitely the winning. There was definitely the gratification of seeing a page of ticks with a gold star a result, and yeah. an excellent like result-based outcome. But also I think the, I think receiving the recognition and praise from the teacher and the mentor, and I think, I think it, it was a way of of crying out really for that as well. Mm. And I had a couple of teachers in primary school. I was lucky enough, first of all, to go to school and get free education. Two, to have fantastic teachers around me and, and teachers that I wanted to please, and adults. I, I was always looking for the pat on the back, you know. Mm. So there was definitely some intrinsic motivation that was attached to this yeah. sort of set of behaviours and character traits that were developing. But there was definitely some extrinsic stuff as well, which were that, that sort of praise and recognition from other people. And, and that just sort of fed the beast. Um, I think performing at a level which was, was gobsmacking to people became addictive, really addictive, mm. where people couldn't believe their eyes. They couldn't believe I'd done it that quick. Um, so then I used to get extra work set in the classrooms because I'd finished everything. And then um, I think there was definitely task motivation, like an ego motivation. And I think to be optimally motivated, I think you need a good blend of both. Yeah. I look at like Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, you look at these guys at the top of their game, you look at Ronaldo and there's definitely a huge egotistical 
component to his motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he's, he's probably just got that huge task and mastery. You don't get that good without having a mastery motivation. For sure. So that I definitely had a blend of both. Something um, Sebastian mentioned on, on our podcast we did with him uh, yesterday, like even though it says no egos above the door there, there needs to be, there's like a good kind of ego to have where you're not just, if you walked onto the, the mat in jiu-jitsu and had no ego, you'd essentially just be the grappling dummy, right? You just yeah. kind of go limp and mm-hmm. everyone can pass my guard, everyone can submit me, it's all cool. And there's, there's a, there's a, ego's tossed around a lot as like a, a bad thing and there's certainly where it's take, taken too far, but there is that, you do need to have a bit of an ego just to have a drive as well, don't you? What's it tool, isn't it? Well, there's, an, there's an ego for wanting the best for yourself and there's an ego for wanting the worst for other people. Like that, right. that's the two things, right? So wanting the best for myself is a good ego to have, right? We can be ambitious, things like that. But an ego where you want to beat other people and have the worst for them, that's the negative mm. thing I would suggest. And that's the, that's the way I see it. Yeah. So right. you've definitely got to have an ego. Um, that recognition thing, again, Awesome brought this up. Sorry, I don't want to keep talking about my own son. It sounds like I'm biased here. But no, it's interesting because I see when you talk about each other, we, I mean, you're a good friend of mine, We don't, but I haven't spoken about this to you before. I see the same thing. Like he mentioned today when he could do those 1,800 kick-ups, people talked about it and people like said he was good and that made him feel good and that adds fuel onto the fire, right? So then you're known to be good at something. You want it again. You want that feeling again, that recognition, if it was from your parent, your teacher, your coach, your friend, the person, the stranger who sees you doing kickups in Barcelona, whatever it is, it fuels that ambition, mm-hmm. right? And that can become addictive for some Absolutely. people. I think certainly the, the public displays of competence and skill and excellence. So it's something that I used to do, you know, take a ball, even as a teenager, you know, we used to, um, it was inspired by the, the, the Nike Yoga Benita advert, the Brazilians in the airport. And they're sort of taking the mick and, yeah. you know, flicking it over security guards. And, yeah. and so me, me and friends used to take a football to town. And you're probably getting antisocial behaviour order for this stuff now. But, you know, we used to just take great pleasure in just rolling it through the legs of an old woman who was walking past and Megan, <laughs> Megan random strangers. Every now and again, you'd get it wrong. <laughs> if you've ever seen a Megan <laughs> go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> people. Damn no, bring it. Yeah, literally. So we, we, we definitely... Um, yeah, we definitely stitched up a couple of people with that. But again, just um, just going to town and um, having a football at your feet and passing it around people and playing one-twos. And, you know, we, we used to chip it off the bus, you know, on, on Eastley Road. Again, more antisocial behaviour that probably really frowned on today. But, you know, on the um, just from, from Hare Hulls up toward Eastley Road, mm. up toward the Ring Road there. So we used to just be playing football in the bus stop. And the big bus would go by, and you'd, you know you'd kick it at the bus, and hopefully, hopefully it hit the bus and come back. Sometimes it didn't, um, you know. And you think of how that might unfold into a really disastrous scenario. It could be crash cars or anything. But at the time, you just you're just looking to do something with the ball, and you're looking to, you know, probably showcase to people what you can expressing do. Expressing yourself, aren't you? Yeah, right? just expressing yourself, hundred percent, hitting hit the nail on the head. So I think coming back to it, just trying to get back on track with the. The points made about childhood. Yeah, th- there was maths as well as football. Mm. And when when you look at it, it wasn't really about maths. Maths was the conduit for, you know, some some deep lying personality traits for them to come forward. Yeah. And probably some needs in the 
the fulfillment hierarchy. Do you think? Do you think that also comes from being a middle brother as well, wanting to be able to kind of stand out through showing your football and your skills as that? Because sometimes, like I'm sort of in the middle as well between I've got a younger sister, um, an older brother, and like a much older brother. I could definitely see that kind of between like me and my my brother that was a year older than me. Like we were kind of stuck in the middle, and we could we. We had offshoots into like different ways because I guess we wanted to stand out in between like my oldest brother and my youngest brother, you know? Potentially. I think you'd probably have to speak to someone more qualified and intelligent than I am right. to, to psychoanalyze that one. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think we, we grow up in the conditions that we grow up in and we, we don't know any different. Mm. And, you know, it's certainly a good question as to how would you have ended up if you weren't one of three brothers? Well, I'd, I'd love to know the answer to that. I suppose t- time will tell. So I have a, a son who's four years old, um, spends a lot of time with, with me, just, just me and him, where he doesn't have the sibling dynamic. And so he's probably not a bad little sort of lab rat, guinea pig, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, <laughs> to find out how someone with my biology might turn out right. without a brother either side. Sure. And if, if the, the character traits carry through, then it's either genetic and inherited, it's just part of my sort of biology, or it's you know, a little bit epigenetic, more recent generations, and maybe a little bit from me. I'm not sure how much of it is environmental, circumstantial, and how much of it is just the mm. way you wired. Mm. I know Mike's talked uh, a lot about that before, but I'm not going to let him talk about it now. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a question before we actually move too far off from what you're talking about, it, um, between like the maths and the football stuff. Uh, and I'm super naive to football. I haven't played since like primary school. I don't really watch football, anything like that. But I was wondering... So martial arts to me is like an art form the same way you talk about painting as being an art form, like a beautiful painting. You can see like emotion in it, like, you you know, great country music song, Mike, as as you love. I hate country music, but this guy plays it all the time in the academy. Yeah, there's real emotion in there, like, oh man, this guy was feeling something when he wrote this, you know. (laughs) Wow. And um, and it's the same for martial arts for me. I can can look at uh, a beautiful jiu-jitsu role in a while, that, that... the way that person rolls is like an expression of who he is, and I can see like beauty in it. Only only recently I can see that really. Uh, but in like high level striking, I can be like, wow, the way he kind of like set up the the kind of shots it like happened. Yeah, there's, there's like a, a poetry to it. Yeah. It? <laughs> now I was wondering, is football more kind of like scientific and, and mathematic in a way, or or is there like an artistry to it? Because I'd have to think, you know. I, Obviously, I'm naive to football, but I've seen like Messi kick a ball around and stuff, and it looks incredibly creative and, mm-hmm. and artistic in a way. I think, in, in relative terms, I think it's certainly one of the more artistic sports with probably broader capacity for creativity and free thinking and free will. I think if you were compare it to a sport such as tennis, it's quite. I suppose all all sports have quite a narrow. Um, funnel of objectives to them. Mm. If you were to describe what is the purpose of football, what, what is the objective? It's to just kick the ball into the goal, isn't it? But then if you unpack that, there's a whole plethora of other things. I think with golf, again, how much scope for creativity within golf? I'm sure if you speak to a golf guy, you can explain to us in great detail the nuance of golf and the skill involved. Mm. But in terms of you know, it's it's quite linear, isn't it? Like you go this way, or like um, running or something. It's like I'm not I'm not particularly sure if there's like a lot of creativity involved in like 
a 5k kind of like you know five thousand meter runner or something absolutely yeah. and, and the same in tennis you know you sort of you knock the ball across the net mm. perhaps i'm not doing these sports enough justice um <laughs> in terms of the again the nuance involved but i think with football i think bearing in mind that you could pretty much do anything with the ball at any given time i think the fact that you could go forwards backwards sideways you could choose to attack choose not to attack i think looking at all the elements of football um you know patience timing it's um, it's only a domain and a game where I think creativity plays a huge part, and I think there's so many different ways to play the game and go about beating your opponent. Um, you you know you can actually concede the ball. You can choose not to have the ball, hmm. and that in itself is a creative way of solving the problem of beating your opponent. Yeah. So it's what tactical, I- <clears throat> the tactical element to it, and all games have their own tactics. I think with football, I just think if you look at the the variation in how you might kick the ball. You know, all the different strokes involved, different surfaces of the feet, um, the ways that you can bluff, double bluff, trick the opponent. You know, he knows that I know that he knows. There's a huge meta game going on. Yeah, and I I think, like, I might be overgeneralising here, but the more creative, the most creative players are generally the most celebrated. You know, if you look at Maradona, you look at Pelé, you look at the game changer, Messi, the people, Ronaldinho, the people who change the perception of what football is through their creativity and what's possible are the icons of the game, right? In my opinion. Mm-hmm. And jiu-jitsu is the same. It's the guys who come up with the next thing, right? Because there's only so many possibilities. Yeah. It's like someone like Keenan Cornelius, for instance, who comes up with a whole different way to play jiu-jitsu. That's like an icon again, because it's like this guy's moved it a different way. We all thought it was here and it's gone over there somewhere. Um, so that creativity... Is celebrated by human beings. We want to see that, don't we? We want to see the art. We want to see the beautiful painting. We want to see the trickery on the football. We want to see the amazing fight. You know, we, we crave that as human beings. Mm. We want to see what's possible. The art it's, of the possible. It's creating genres, isn't it? It's Elvis Presley, something different. Yeah, right. Rock know? and roll. Yeah. Does that change between an individual and a team, or is that just um, like, is it the way an individual is creative in football? Is it the same way a team can be? Creative in football? We're going somewhere interesting here because I wanted to talk about like why Catalan. So on that, I'm thinking like the way certain teams play like Barcelona or Pep yeah. Guardiola. Or... I, th- I, think, um, I think it's more, maybe less creativity and more strategy when you look at the collective. Mm. So it's, you know, what, what is the way in which we would like to play and, and how will we collectively play to a set of values and coherent thoughts that is essentially what Pep Guardiola and the guys at the very top of the game um, that have their own quite distinct playing styles that is what they do you can almost see that whether you call that creativity I suppose in football you know, it's how you define creativity isn't it is it the clever back heel is it the, the skill that the Brazilian produces that no one's ever seen before is it the actual the mastery of the object and the way it's manipulated you know the back heel the overhead kick the um the hidden pass. I think we typically, when you say creativity in the context of football, that's the stuff you think about. So Ronaldinho, Zidane, people like that that do the unexpected and get the crowd on the feet. I think on the team side and the collective side, I think to I think to to break the mould for a manager, you know, and, and for him to be creative, I think what it has to do is problem solve. I think it's a way of I think developing a system or a blueprint of playing 
and then to condition a group of players into open up to do that cohesively mm-hmm. to to counter the playing style strengths or to exploit weaknesses of opposition that has its own components of creativity within it but it's probably more analytical so it's you know, I suppose the lines between analysis and um, an instinct and the lines between a you know plan and improvisation um, this is the game that these managers are trying to play with the teams and then imprint their own I suppose outlook on the game into a set of individuals that have their own agendas and their own thoughts and their own preferences and their own inherent playing styles that is a huge as a huge field of study that is not yet mastered and you know for sure I mean and let's put a pin on that because you know I definitely want to talk to you about like the whole leadership strategy and tactics and the dynamics between um, players and, and managers and coaches and things like that. But let's get a, a bit more context into like how Catalan came to be and stuff. So, um, you know, let's take us just out of high school now. Like, have you got a bit, have you got a bit more of an idea of where things are going? Like, well, do you, do you plan to go to uni? Yeah, it's strange. So age 13, 14, that, that was the end of, of playing regular football. Right. For me, competitively, yeah. So I, I essentially continued to play at school and spent a lot of time on the playground with the mm. ball. So, you know, you, I think when you start playing for a team, people say sort of giving up the game. But for me, the game just shifted to a different arena, to a different habitat. You know, one where I felt that I could sort of pick your fights, really, pick and choose your battles. And, and the, the game looked like I wanted it to look as opposed to playing a different version of the game, which was very sort of results orientated, and there's a lot of physical bias, and you know managers there with their own agenda, and uh, I suppose, yeah. So, so I, I did continue to play, um, but it just wasn't for a team. So up until the age of sixteen, it was all school and social football essentially, and then after that, I went to college to Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I went to Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go. Um, so that was a few years ago. And didn't play much football there. And um, yeah, just sort of left it for a while until the age sort of 21, 22, which is where I came back into the initially the, the playing side of things at the, the adult team or Woodley. And what was the catalyst for that? You just, you just wanted to get back into it? Or? Yeah, well, I think, I think I've just sort of been through the whole teenage college thing and spent time with friends and, you know, done the whole going to get a job and spending weekends <coughs> with you know, we sort of a peer group. I'd sort of done that and at age 21, 22, after I'd worked a few jobs that weren't the most exciting um, or, or certainly weren't what I thought they would be, then I, I just thought, look, I need to course correct here. And I think everybody probably needs that time, you know, sometimes away from the thing that you love to get some perspective and think where it fits in your life. But for a 14, 15 year old who you know, isn't the biggest, isn't the quickest, very skillful, but doesn't have the attributes for success in, you know, highly physicalised, 11-a-side football environment. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of people walk away. Participation for kids around that age, between age 12 to 14, just sort of drops off a cliff. Yeah. And yeah. was it a deep love for the game then, Matt? Is that what you came back for? Because, I mean, we're going to get to this, but you've based your whole life around football now because that's your business, right? You've created an amazing business that I'm desperate for you to share with everyone. So you left it for a bit because we talked about jiu-jitsu as when you train jiu-jitsu, it kind of gets under your skin a bit and you may leave it. And sometimes that's a healthy thing. 
but you kind of always got this pull to come back. So when you first, when you came back to football at 2021, 22, was that, did you miss it? And did you want to get back to it? Or did you just kind of stumble across it? Yeah, again? well, I think, so, so at the time I, I was working at HSBC. So I did a few jobs. I, I was, I did a year at college, left college. So I did AS levels, which is the first half of your A levels. Did sort of maths, computing, psychology. Left it at 17. There was a sort of breakup at home. Mum and dad went separate ways, sort of rocks the foundations of you know, what, what you thought your life was. Yeah. And um, dad, dad moved away. I ended up just getting a job, just sort of bringing a bit of money into the household and stuff. And I think my, my head definitely wasn't in the right place for education. So moved out of education, worked at the Hilton Hotel, started on the concierge, sort of carrying bags and opening doors for people and, you know, just sort of doing the whole bellboy thing um, mm. helping people park the cars and stuff progressed on from that um, into the accounts office there sort of the numbers and the affinity mm-hmm. for numbers pulled me back into the that sort of domain of arithmetic and spreadsheets and uh, bookkeeping did the income audit at the Hilton Hotel for a year or two and then went to work with I went to Southampton to live for a while to work with um, well, and do you have any uh, juicy Hilton hotel gossipy secrets that you can share um, not really <laughs> no, no it was pretty boring to be honest I mean uh, this I think I, I used to work between the hours sort of 7 and 3 it's, it's all the restaurant and the bar staff that probably yeah. oh, right. work until 11 12 right. o'clock and probably have got the best gossip for you Good. I've still got contact details for a couple of guys there so <laughs> right. if you have to we'll have we'll get stories yeah. <laughs> I could probably put you in touch, but no, my involvement in the hotel was sort of um, helping people park the cars, taking bags to rooms and help, you know, helping people just sort of with, with the more boring stuff. Um, so Southampton then, you get to Southampton. You... Yeah, so I uh, spent a bit of time there, did, um, did a little bit with my dad, came back to Leeds, ended up working at, at HSBC and... Um, it was the first direct call centre. So I spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, did quite well, did a couple of years, got a couple of sort of performance accolades and stuff, you know, just for productivity. Again, the obsession with numbers, it sort of bled through into the performance in that job. I used to do more calls than everybody else, quicker than everybody else, hit the best metrics. I was obsessed with the lowest error rates and things and call wrap times. You know, the, the job is, they broken down into those metrics and the best performers are the ones considered to give the best service but also hit the numbers for productivity so did a little while there and it, it was it was in that job really that i sort of i think the time spent in that job and the lack of creativity and capacity for to be spontaneous and creative in that job um that pushed me back toward football because after a while i, I did struggle to sort of motivate myself to go in there and, and work every day right it was getting it was getting quite demoralizing and i think as an individual it just became a bit of a we call it like a chicken pen but you know it was a bit of a chicken factory where you're all in your little cubicles yeah. plugged into the phone right and it was bit, you know you used to look around there and think you know am i in the matrix here yeah you know, they're all it? plugged into those pods and you just sort of yeah how to separate man from machine yeah so was um, it um, was it in those cubicles that the idea for Catalan was born, or did that come later? Well, it, it was certainly the the catalyst to to walk away and go find football again. Um, there's there's actually a film which you know I'd encourage anyone who's struggling with the 
um, with the things that I was struggling with, job satisfaction and, and, and maybe struggling to find a path. I encourage him to watch watch this film. It is a cult comedy. Um, Jennifer Aniston is in the film. She's not bad to look at. She's a nice looking lady. For anyone who knows who she is, I'm speaking to the old crowd here. Um, it's called Office Space. So the, I'll lay it out quickly, but the theme of the film is you've got this guy who's a computer programmer, sits in a cubicle all day, and his job is to update computer code for the um, year 2000, the millennium bug right. switch. Again, I'm speaking to the old crowd. You might not know what that is. There's this great fear that all the you know two-digit, two-digit, two-digit bins and computer systems in the bank software, when that went to zero, zero, you know, the, yep. the whole totally world crashed. Crash. Yeah, so that's this guy's job. Hates his job. Um, he's falling out with his girlfriend because he's just so miserable and depressed. Goes to a hypnotist and um, he says to the hypnotist, look, every, every time you see me, um, you know, it's, it's worse than the day before. So every time you see me, it's the worst day of my life. It's perpetually getting worse. You know, can you hypnotise me and just make me think that when I'm at work, I'm doing something like really fun, like I'm on the beach or something. He goes, look, it doesn't work like that, but we can go through some hypnotherapy and we can you know, gradually bring you out of this, this sort of depression. So anyway, so the guy hypnotises him and he's in this sort of, you know, this state, three to one, you're hypnotised. Then the guy who's hypnotising him has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> so he's, he's locked in to this state of hypnosis for the rest of his life. <laughs> And basically, the guy, <laughs> the guy goes into work and just doesn't care. So he starts turning up in Hawaiian shirts, <laughs> and his boss is ringing him at like quarter to ten, saying, "Where are you?" And he just goes in and just doesn't care. And he starts to live his life in that way. Mm. Um, and he basically has a conversation with his flatmate, who's a bit of a redneck guy. Since the country music, you probably absolutely yeah. <laughs> no point in me. Yeah, that's the country music don't, guy. Don't give any more spoilers. I mean, yeah. So it's cracking film and. Essentially, he asks this guy a question. He says, um, "You know, if you were a millionaire, and this is this is the this is the point that I'm slowly rambling towards." He says, "You know, if you were a millionaire, what would you and you never had to work again? Like, what would you do with your time?" And the guy says, um, "I've probably <laughs> I won't repeat it actually, but I keep listening." <laughs> but he says he'd do something. Um, and he says, no, no, that's not the point. Do it involve Jennifer Aniston? No, it doesn't. It involves his, his, his two female neighbours. Yeah. So anyway, um, so he says, look, no, the point of the question is, whatever your answer to that question is, that should be the job that you pursue. So, for example, if, if I say, look, you never have to work again, like how do you spend your time right. if you're retired? You say, oh, look, I'd hit the golf course every day. Well, cool. So you'll go be a golf coach or try to be a professional golfer. Or if, if your dream is to um, swim with dolphins, then go and work with dolphins. That's the essence of the question. So this redneck guy misinterprets and give him, you know, gives him a, a funny answer for comedy value. Um, so this guy, he says, well, what would you do? And he puts the question back on him. He says, oh, well, I'd do absolutely nothing. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'd just do nothing all day, every day. That's my dream. <laughs> if, if I was a millionaire, I'd never work again. I'd just do nothing. He said, well, you don't need to be a millionaire to do nothing. <laughs> he said, just, just don't do anything. Just don't go to work. And he's like, oh, of course, a great point. So, so this guy basically just gives up his job and gives up everything. But he finds greater satisfaction and sort of fulfillment in his life. Ends up at the end of the film working on the building site. Um, gives up this sort of high-paying job in computer software. But he's never been happier because, in essence, he's, he's living 
like Melina. Yeah. yeah. Through not doing the job that he did. And is that, and is that, and is that, is that what ended up happening with you then, HSBC, is you kind of walked away? or? I, yeah, so so essentially I thought, look, if so I asked myself the same question, tried to frame it in the same in the same way and thought, look, if I never had to work again, like what would I spend my time doing? And essentially the answer, there's nothing I've ever enjoyed, enjoyed more than football. So it was that rediscovery of, of the child. And I thought, you know what, I'd rather make 800 quid a month, 1,000 quid a month, doing something that I love to do because than to do what I'm doing now, you know, for more money. And it was a bit of an epiphany at the time and the, the, the messages in the film sort of cemented that, that, you know, you should try, or you should certainly be open to the possibility of going, going and doing something that, you know, speaks to that inner child and, you know, doing something where mm-hmm. your passions lie. Because, because in that, you know, we, we've heard the mantra, with the phrase of, you do what you love, you never work again. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much it. I, w- I was willing to, to do football and, you know, make a very sort of modest living from it, if any living at all. You know, in pursuit of that that fulfilment, the only football really, other than mathematics, had, had ever given me. It's quite a brave step, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people probably get to that point of like, oh, I'd love to do that, but then they just stop there, like, and they just carry on working on that kind of like on the desk job. And like, I, I, I think it's difficult for people because yeah. I think we all essentially end up on the treadmill a little bit too soon, and I think there were definitely some circumstantial factors at the time that allowed me to do that. You know, it's not easy to just quit your job and walk out and go and um, you know skip around the local field playing football if you've got two kids and you've got responsibilities and you're on the financial treadmill. It's very difficult to do. And I think, um, I, you know, look, luckily enough, I was at an age where it was, the choice was continue to do this or just quit the job, you know, and live in you know, the, the back bedroom of, of my mum's house and you know, self-train and self-educate as a football coach and, you know, pay her a couple of quid a month, a uh, couple hundred quid a month in, in board, make six, seven hundred, but just be really happy in, in what I was doing. Not everybody has that safety net beneath them. Yeah. It's still a brave step. It's still yeah. a brave step because I think a lot of 21, 22, 23-year-olds want a girlfriend, want a nice car, want to go out with their mates and they get driven down that line. But I think your your the, that epiphany to kind of go on more the kind of lifestyle of like how it made you feel. Not everyone like does that. And so you're in your mum's back bedroom and you start to train as a football coach. Like what was, because you've told me before, like Catalan soccer was born from like a job centre alone, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, when I see your business now, that's unbelievable to think about it. So what, how did that come about? What, what happened there? So you, had, you I'm guessing you left, you had no money, right? Oh, but you I, had an yeah, idea. Absolute zero, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah there, was, there was there was no capital there. There was no support from, you know, parents or financial support from mm-hmm. parents or, or relatives. Um, there was no sort of you know benevolent person there just sort of pulling the strings and and, and making it happen for me. So yeah, so essentially it just started off with you know me in the bedroom with an idea, just sort of foraging around the football sector, looking for ways in which I could a get involved, you know get involved, two, be educated, three, make enough money to make it viable to sort of get by. So you're looking at stuff like Sunday League refereeing, you're looking at, you know, five-a-side refereeing. Very difficult to get paid as a football coach um, if you've no qualifications or experience. Obviously, the grassroots game is 
there's such a huge, huge part of of the football sector and industry, which is I suppose propped up by volunteers at the bottom, mm. that breaking through that initial, that you know, piercing that first tier of unpaid work is very, very difficult because um, there's not a lot of money at the, in the bottom bottom end of the game. Right. So yeah, so it essentially was me in the bedroom looking for online courses and doing every single course that I could do with the FA. It was me reading up on football coaching, pulling resources, watching YouTube videos, and just trying to download, you know, and, and assimilate as much information as I possibly could and to become, you know, a self-taught football coach. Um, I was knocking on doors, trying to get opportunities, you know, to coach teams. So Wigton Moor, I, I used to volunteer with the 111 girls team there. Um, the manager wouldn't let me lead any sessions because I was just this guy that never coached football and it was his kid's team and so I just used to watch and pick up cones and things. Um, I used to go and uh, watch other coaches work at the West Riding Affair, uh, some of the Legion United sessions at Thomas Danby. So it was just a process of exposure and information gathering and discovery in terms of what does it look like, what's the roadmap to being a professional football coach. and. Yeah, you know, Mike, Mike sort of dropped it there that there was there was a bit of government help in in making that first step. So when I decided that, look, there's not enough paid opportunity out there in the coaching world to actually go and make a viable or substantial income from this, it became pretty apparent that you you had to go and do your own thing. So there was this incentive that the the job centre had been advertising, which was um, it, it was a job grant and. The nature of the grant was that it was £100 and if you were currently out of work, which, you know, I was, I was making a negligible amount of money that didn't even affect sort of the, the job seeker credit that I was on. Um, so essentially this job grant was designed to, it was a one-off grant, £100, and they'd essentially give, gift it to people for them to buy shoes and maybe suit shirt and tie for an interview. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like... Um, like a bit of a springboard into work. Right. So, so yeah, so I thought I'd look, apply for this. With 100 quid, I could buy a few bibs, footballs, and then get out there and, and try and start a soccer school. So I'm quickly running, running through the story there. So Is this the, 12 years ago, Matt? So, yeah. Because yeah, we, we need to know that, because we, when we talk about the growth here, I want anyone listening who's in that office space to think about their life in 12 years' time. And if they start here with some ambition, some balls and a hundred quid, where they might be in 12 years time. Mm-hmm. So 12 years ago, hundred pound job centre alone. Yeah. That's the start. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and even, even getting along, you know, there was, there was hardship there in terms of, you know, my mum at the time had you no know, change in the purse. So I had to walk to town from, from Gledhow, which doesn't sound like a big thing. Everybody's out there walking these days and, I'm pretty sure, you know, 25,000 steps sounds like nothing to the people that have been, you know, flexing over lockdown. But, um, you know, it was a journey. So I've walked to town, got the appointment, um, and then the the person that was administering the, the grants that day couldn't sign the loan off for me to go and buy football equipment. I, I should have told them I was buying a shirt and tie and some shoes, but I was honest and full of hope and um, naivety that these guys had given me 100 quid so I could start a football school. So I had to walk back. That was a long walk back, you know, to find out that, you know, Sheila's not in today so and no one else can sign this off. So, yeah, so, so the next day, again, no money in the pocket, 
no change in your mum's purse. And she was on her own at the time and, and didn't have you know, much money kicking around. And there was a decision there. I thought, look, do, do, I, do I actually go back or do I just sort of sack this off? Um, and, and thankfully, you know, I did make the decision to, to go again. And um, I think it was about quarter to 11, the appointment was at 12. And I, I looked outside, it just started to rain. I was like this close, like an inch away from just, you know, kicking the shoes off, taking off my jacket and going back upstairs. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. So I got an extra jacket on, pair of gloves, and I walked in in the rain um, all the way to the job centre in town. Sat there for half an hour, no Sheila, 45 minutes, no Sheila, again about to walk <laughs> out. And then, you know, Matthew, you know, she, she called me through, went in, had to beg, plead, and um, they said, look, the only way that we can give you this £100, because this is just completely, like, you know, <laughs> way out there in terms of anything we've ever done, you know, that's bu- bureaucracy for you. They said, we're going to have to come with you no and way. watch you spend the money. Oh so you don't buy, you know, drugs, substances, or yeah, spend it on a wild night in the Hilton, <laughs> whatever it is. So um, so I was in, I was in Sports Direct mm. with this woman who'd been sent um, who'd been sent with me into, into town and I was in there with essentially a minder this really, really nice lady yeah. and she, she had the lanyard on she's walking around and she's she's got the hundred quid and I'm, I'm picking out what I'm going to buy and, and doing the maths you know um, and yeah but bought hundred quid's worth of like bibs combs you know the plastic is Sondicore terrible footballs in the big sports oh, yeah. direct bins well sort of back then you could actually get you know, quite a few footballs and stuff right. for a hundred quid. Not so much now. Um, got the stuff and yeah, she paid for it and left and, and that was that. So I took the stuff home, put it in the bedroom, jumped on the laptop, which I'd got from a guy around the corner that was completely falling to pieces. You had to sort of tilt the screen to get it to, to work. Like there was all these green lines on the, on the screen. So anytime you did graphic design or had to get some aesthetics on something, like for the website that I, that I built, you had to like tilt the screen, like twist it, almost like snap it in two, just for the VGA to sort of, you know, to give you a, a clear picture. Right. So I'm there with sort of bedroom full of football stuff and this, this dodgy laptop with, you know, I'm ashamed to have the pirate software on because I couldn't afford the Adobe subscription, you know, for um, Dreamweaver and Photoshop. And, yeah. and that's where it happened. Just as a super quick aside, yeah. um, keep on car. But what did your mum think of this plan when you told her? Like, well, I mean, she was sceptical. I, th- I think you know any parent that sees the son quit the job and go and sit in the bedroom, you know, and, and <laughs> fiddle around. Alarm bells are ringing. Yeah, right? that's it. Fiddle around on a computer, and you know, she, she was she was just concerned. You know, she didn't. The thing is, I think it comes down to anyone who's been an entrepreneur started their own thing not everybody sees your vision and not everybody you can forgive them for this not everyone mm. can feel the inertia mm. of your drive toward it so you tell them what you're going to do that they they might sort of believe that you're going to move in that direction but they don't know how hell-bent obsessed you are right. on, on achieving that goal and it's quite difficult to communicate that to people mm. but it's just a feeling that you just know it's like trying to explain to someone how much you love your kids. You'll never quite get it across. And it's the same with when you start your own business and it, it can seem quite a radical thing to do and quite a radi- radical 
ideological mm-hmm. thing for people to buy into that you're going to go and achieve this thing in football you know, with 100 quid from the job centre and no kids and no customs and no qualifications. But did you know it was going to be successful, like deep well, down? Or? I, I, yeah, I just, I just knew because the thing is with the, and this is where the, I suppose the the work ethic that was developed as a, as a kid and the attitude toward maths and some of those character traits start to really sort of bear fruit and become more relevant in the entrepreneurial sense. Um, I, I just knew that I was willing to do whatever it whatever it took. And if it, if it meant taking home the textbook, that's exactly what I was going to do. If it meant working twice as quick as everybody else around me, like I used to do at the call centre to hit the best stats, that's what I was going to do. Um, I, I just do not accept failure. And I think whatever you want to say, without going too politically, without, you know, whatever you want to say about society and the constraints and, you know, the, um, I suppose, the the liberties and freedoms that we have to, to go and be creative and to go and, establish ourselves within the free market i think everybody with with certainly support around them and the right circumstances but with the right mindset can pretty much go and achieve anything um, and it's not to say that there aren't barriers because there's always barriers you know whether it's um a poor upbringing whether it's sort of race whether it's gender whether it's you know just a lack of of access to finance and capital and leverage whether it's a lack of um a spouse or whether you're sort of physically not as able as, as others, um, we're not all born with the same IQ and cognitive output. You know, there, there's always barriers, but I, I do believe that if you if you're obsessed with moving toward a goal, I think we live in a free and fair enough society, society that, that that anyone can get there. Mm, it, it just takes some people longer than others, and I, I just didn't care how long it took. Mm. And I was early twenties, and you touched on it earlier, Mike. You know, with the some of the social sacrifices. I think when you tell yourself that you're willing to make the social sacrifices, you know, your friends around you at that kind of age, they're buying, you know, sort of Levi jeans. It was Levi at the time. Um, and, you know, these guys are sort of getting the first cars on PCP and finance. And, you know, your, your mate who you went to school, he's got a brand new Mercedes A-Class. You don't have a car. And um, they've got nice watches and shirts and they can afford to drink on a weekend. When, when you sort of forsake all that and tell yourself that you don't need it, um, there's a hell of a lot of opportunity out there. And not just that, but there's, I think when, when you take those character traits into the community and certainly to professional communities, I think also, I think people are, there's, there's a magnetism to it. I think what you end up doing is if you really believe in your cause and you believe in yourself and you don't care what it takes and you're doing it for the right reasons and everybody has a different truth and maybe set of right reasons that they're doing it for, I, I just, there was just nothing that could stop me. Well, you're inspirational, aren't you? And that's that's why we wanted you on this kind of podcast because I think your story, we're just kind of getting to the beginning. Like, since it's inspirational, we talk to our membership, don't we, around kind of dreaming big and we've done some stuff on that. This this is exactly the same, but in a business context. Mm. If you're prepared to dream bigger than you believe is, or most other people believe actually, is achievable and you're prepared to sacrifice what it takes, you will make it. But people sell themselves short. Or they don't believe they can do it. And they're the two things. They either aim low, meet it, and are unfulfilled, or they never believe that they have what it takes. But you've got to start. You've got to walk away from the call centre. You've got to walk to town. You've got to give up something. to, And then you've got to tell everyone about it. And this is a big thing that I kind of talk about is you've got to hold yourself accountable to that dream. You've got to go and tell everyone, I'm going to build the biggest soccer school in the north of England. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. Watch this. 
I'm going to leave my job and start Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy. And I'm going to row across the Atlantic. I'm going to join the Marines, whatever it is. You go tell everyone about it. Hold yourself accountable. Then there's no going back then. Then you've got to go forward. Right? It's the public pledge, isn't it? It's, it's why people get sponsorship, you know, for, for the 10K, because you're accountable to those people. Yeah. Um, and I think with the soccer school, yeah, there, there, were, there were pledges made to people. Initially, it was, I'm going to be a, a professional football coach or I'm going to referee in the Premier League. It's one of those two things. Right. Yeah, because essentially when you're first trying to get into the football industry, you know, from the very bottom, the, the, the readily available sort of cash there is, is in refereeing. You know, you can go and do a Sunday game. It was 20 quid at the time. And you can do three games on Sunday, so 10, 12 and 2 o'clock. Um, if you're lucky enough to get back-to-back games at Soldiers Field, for example, or at a set venue, um, you can get £20 an hour. And no one's, that's a good wage. Mm. That's triple the minimum wage, isn't it? For um, for anyone, that's good money. So th- that initially was, that's how I sort of subsidised the coaching. And for anyone who's thinking of getting into football coaching and, and maybe doesn't have any capital behind them or... Um, you know, refereeing is a is it's a quick win. Mm. It's the low hanging fruit in in the football sort of sure. world. And so I used to do three games on Sunday, a Wednesday game at Leeds University, a Thursday night at the the Five Side Football Centre down at Goals, which was forty quid. And you put all these twenty quids and forty quids together, and you know you've got you've got your bottom line. You've got your seven eight hundred quid a month, mm. which living with parents, anybody can survive on. You know, so it was that that that's where it all sort of started, but you know what, what Mike said there, it's, you know, you, you make you make the public pledge and then you've got accountability to others and yourself. And then there's there's all those those push factors as well as the pull factors. So you've got the dream, you've got the Everest point that you're moving toward that you want to hit, the thing that you're climbing for. But behind you, you've got shame, fear, embarrassment, ridicule, you know. Yeah, um, customers. Yeah, or, or, yeah. <laughs> That's it. All, all those things that you're sort of running from, and that's optimal motivation, isn't it? When you, you're running from things and you're moving toward things. Yeah. So anytime that you lose the pull, you've still got the push. And if you lose the push, you've still got the pull. So that, that's that's how the whole thing started. And um, we went. I went from sort of bedroom, building up the football coaching, um, self-designing websites, learning graphic design software, which my brother Ben helped me do. He was just toying around with Photoshop and cars at the time. So he set the building blocks for that one. No credit to him. He spent a bit of time with me, showed me the basics on software. And um, yeah, and, and in, in the meantime, I was sort of volunteering coaching, couldn't get paid to do it, but then refereeing to to fund essentially the the acquisition of equipment mm. and to fund some kind of lifestyle and be able to get on the buses and travel to football and you know, buy your own boots and kits mm. and stuff. So how did it start? Well, I've got kind of three kind of questions that could all probably be answered in, in one. Is uh, how did you um, how did you come up with the name Catalan? Uh, how did you get your kind of first like few kids that you started to coach? And uh, I should go for for that for now. Yeah, cool. So well, the soccer school originally began as ABC Soccer School, so it was primarily pitched at kids aged four to seven. And some of the age appropriate coaching courses that I've done with the with the football association, that one of the big messages was the, the importance of ABCs, so fundamental movement skills in children, which is where there's probably some overlap between the two, yeah. two sort of genres, two sports. Um, it's agility, balance, coordination, speed. And so there was a huge, for the first time ever really, there was, in, in the, there was an age-appropriate course developed by the Football Association. And 
there'd been clearly quite a lot of quite valuable um, input from not just child psychologists, but they looked at the actual biological development of children, um, the the golden age of learning, as it's called, up until the age of 10, where the myelination of the nervous system is at its peak and you can acquire and develop motor skills quicker than if, if you miss that window of opportunity. So the ABC soccer school was almost a tribute, really, to the, the stuff that I'd been taught. It seemed quite relevant. ABCs is fundamental, friendly, elementary, um, and essentially it is exactly what it says on the tin. It's, it's where you start, isn't it? Yeah. So ABC Soccer was round at the Gledhow Sports and Social Club. So I'd essentially pitch myself to the, the committee there, uh, the council. Mm. It's quite a nerve-wracking experience to have sort of 10 middle-aged men staring you down and, you know, having to justify why you want to wreck their bit of grass every Saturday for not a lot of money. And um, yeah, there was, I think there was 10, 10 or 11 kids that came to the first class. It was, wow, it was yeah. three pounds. Seven of them came for free because I just needed a group. So I was just knocking on people's doors, inviting people down right. for free just to get a group going. And you had sort of kids age five through to nine. So mixed ability, mixed age groups. And um, yeah, that was the first ever session. And by that point through the referee and, and you know, which was obviously spun from the job centre, granted them 100 quid, um, I, I'd managed to get enough stuff together that I could put on a session, had goalposts, footballs, cones, and all the essential bits. So that was the first session, and there was, there was about 10 kids. Right. Only three of them had sort of paid. <laughs> and, and from there, did, was it the case that you, was it like an always on a Saturday thing? Did you build out a schedule for things? How did that work? Yeah, so that was Saturday mornings at sort of half nine, 10 o'clock. Yeah, so I was doing that without, without transport. Just once a week. Yeah, so it was once a week. Once a week. Yeah, and then the other sort of time spent coaching in the weekly schedule was um, it was just volunteering work. And, how, and how long did that run for then, Matt? So the ABC soccer thing. See, this is because we we started like twelve years ago. You sat in your bedroom. Now we're maybe like eleven, ten years ago. And how long did that run for in that kind of format? I think I think it was it wasn't long. It it was I think it was between six and nine months. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, okay. and then uh, as it grew to you know, a modest number of sort of 25, 30 kids. The, um, the, so the Gledhouse Sports and Social Club is essentially cricket pitch. I think they use it for, the, at the time, it was a right. cricket pitch. And um, yes. The, <laughs> You're wrecking the, the square. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the grass started to take a little, little bit of a beating and there were a few sort of dissenting voices on the committee. I think they started to think it wasn't such a good idea. And, and the, I don't think they set up anything really to capitalise on the footfall of parents, teas and coffees and stuff. So it was just it was just a lost leader for them, but a lost leader into nothing. It was just something that was good for the community. And there was a there was a few conversations around charging more for the usage, and it just made the whole thing completely as a business proposition, completely pointless. And what what I didn't want to do was been running something which you know was underfunded understaffed and you know i didn't want to turn up there every saturday and resent being there i, I used to so i used to have to walk the stuff around so it's so why i used to live on Brackenwood drive and gladhouse sports and social is is about a, it's about a mile and a half right i think um from from Brackenwood drive to sort of the, the edge of round school and that that doesn't sound too far but when you're oh, setting yeah, off yeah. at like quarter seven with your samba goals on your back, 
Huge bag of football. Walking balls. around <laughs> and then walking back and then getting your footballs and your cones and walking back again. Mm. And then he's setting everything up. It was like two and a half hours, three hours set up. Yeah. And Six then you'd miles do your classes start. and then you'd, everyone would leave. Mm. And then you'd, you'd be walking back. So for the first ever session, my brother Ben gave me a lift. But then after that, I, I was just walking. Mm. And um, I, I could have got a taxi, tried to get a taxi. But then Premier Taxis in Leeds, the driver soon figured out that this young guy was trying to throw a lot of crap in the car covered in mud. So he couldn't, I then couldn't get a taxi, so I couldn't even, I couldn't even pay. Did you, mate, so did you have was, an ambition at that point? So when you started this, this is what I'm interested in, like, did you, did you set off, because I've got an ambition, I actually don't mind saying on camera, like, to be, my ambition is to be the most successful Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy in the country, right? That's a massive ambition. Will we ever make it? Who knows, but I'm going to give it a good go. Mm -hmm. And successful by numbers kind of membership yeah what did you set out to achieve was it just a living in football or was yeah, it that, that, that 100 was, kids that or was still it. yeah that that was still just it. Pay it, the bills. It, it was it was still it was still the sort of not, not the macro goal of not the same goals that i've certainly got now with shifting priorities and, and opportunity and things but um at the time it was just to just to get by on football right that was it you know, it was to be a, to make a living from football coaching, sort of professional football coach. That doesn't mean working in the professional game. It just means I do this for a living. Yeah, so you I'm a professional. Um, or or being, being a referee. And, and at the time, the two, I was a, I was a pretty good referee. I, I learned quite a bit from my dad, who was a really strong and authoritative and commanding figure, um, man in black. And I, I was really good at refereeing and I'd sort of been fast-tracked through you know, sort of cup finals and you know, sort of some semi-professional stuff. So it was just a matter of seeing which one sort of matured first. But it was just to to make a living from football. That mm. you know, there were two goals that in parallel were sort of maturing at different rates. And um, yeah, the football school at the time was just it was just parallel to the refereeing. So it was only really when. I'd start to get paid work through the West Riding Football Association, which is the regional governing body. And I've been doing some work at Leeds United. I've been volunteering there. And then when the coach left, I was I put myself in a position where I was the next logical choice. Knew the kids, knew the parents, knew the drill, super reliable, you know, demonstrated all the character traits. And they sort of gave me gave me the job. Um so that was 30 quid, you know, 28 quid every every Wednesday night, Thomas Danby. And so the, the revenue, well, I suppose the income from coaching started to build and we were still a while away from the tipping point where it was going to pay more than refereeing. But there was, I was building something. You know, the, the refereeing was still very transactional. It, mm. You're on a progressive pathway of qualifications, but, you know, um, I was, I'd start to build a community around the soccer school and to see that community sort of grow and develop and to start to build relationships with children. You don't really build relationships in refereeing. Mm. You know, you might referee the same five-a-side players every Thursday night. You know, all that means is that you just get sworn up by the same people. Yeah, you're not on the team. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're on your own team. Yeah, and, and no one really wants you to be there. It's like um, everybody, hates, you <laughs> yeah, everyone hates the referee. And there's some good guys that play down there. I don't want to sell five-a-side footballers this cauldron of abuse for referees because it's not, an, I didn't enjoy elements of, of, of the refereeing down there. It was certainly character building when, when you are in sort of the um, pressure cook with 10 guys that are all, all fired up. But um, 
yeah, the, the actual soccer school. I think, I think, you know, me being quite, quite a compassionate, empathetic, quite a people-focused person. I think the, um, I think the football coaching school and the community that was building around it, and the gratification from the soccer school, the, the you know, the balance had started to tip really, and right. I think that's where I, I definitely was getting the most fulfilment although the referee was paying more. Mm. And then it became a choice of like, well, hang on a second, this is actually a very similar choice to what you made before. So you're going from HSBC and banking to football, and now it's like, right, now you're going from refereeing, which pays more, into coaching. And yeah, rather than choosing the money, I chose... You choose yourself, yeah. And and so at what point did it become Catalan then? Yeah, so ABC Soccer School then moved to Old Woodley, Again, the, the sort of not dispute because some really good people there. I don't want to um, you know, cast a, a shadow or or um, make out as if the people that are sports and social committee were the bad guys in any way or you know were, were unreasonable. But um, after the conflict of interest that developed there, I moved to Old Woodley and was playing for a team at the time. So there were a few guys there that were really welcoming. A guy called Brett Gaunt, um, Richie Kilner, who was the treasurer. Um, a guy called Nad that I ended up running a team with and my best friend from childhood Ryan Ryan Lau he um, he sort of said look come play for the team so that was that was me playing football and um, I asked if those guys if I could bring the soccer school across and as, as part of a having learned a bit of a lesson from the first um, facility relationship I, that I'd brokered with the Gledhow one I thought look I need to put something on the table here for these guys, um, and it needs to be mutually beneficial, and not just me exploiting their bit of grass. So essentially, what I did was I offered to run junior teams for the Old Woodley Football Club and, and and build a junior football section for them. And in return, ABC Soccer School would be the vehicle for recruitment. Yep. And it also gave me grass and the first ever bit of storage that I'd had, which meant that you could scale. And not have to worry about bringing have to walk your ten sandals on your back, um, and again, I was able to do that because I, through the referee, and I managed to fund driving lessons. I bought a Ford Fiesta for four hundred quid, paid for the insurance, which was like two and a half grand. All these are barriers, yeah. But the referee allowed me to have no backing from you know, rich mum and dad, or even a, you know, even even an uncle or anyone that could that could um, help me with costs. I'd managed to sort of fund those those assets that allowed me to go and coach at Old Woodley. And from there, it sort of grew from 30 to 50 to 60 to 70 kids. We had a junior team. Eventually, the soccer school just got too big for Old Woodley. So we actually moved to goal soccer centres. And this was a big sort of pivotal moment, really, yeah. in, in, the, in the infancy of the business. And um, how how where are we in this kind of twelve year journey at this point? Yeah, so this is like this is like ten ten years ago. Okay, so still pretty. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that nine or ten years ago. So so I, I was overly for a while. I think it was a year, maybe a year and a bit. I, again, we just outgrew the facility. We just outgrew the field. We were doing too much damage mm. to the eleven side football pitch. And again, the conflict of interest developed where it's like, look, you're running these teams for us. We appreciate what you're doing. I was sort of managing the reserve team of the adult section again, just as part of the 
relation, you know, yep. reciprocity of the whole thing. Buying goodwill with my time, which is all I had to give. And um, yet again, we just it's almost like a cell that gets bigger and then it divides and splits and multiplies. And, and that's what happened with Old Woodley. So I moved to goal soccer centres, which was a huge, a huge leap. Um, there wasn't really, the, looking back on it, I mean, you tell yourself that you made the right choice, but there wasn't really a choice. We were just unable to scale any further. All parties involved were suffering in some form. And there was a big price to pay moving to goals because it's a huge risk. You know, for you guys, let's say here, to set up 100 members, and then for you to move five, five miles down the road and ask everyone here to drag themselves on a Saturday morning through traffic, speed cameras, mm-hmm. down, you know, down to the, the city centre. It was, a, it was a huge, a huge leap. And um, did they all go? Every single one of them. Mm. I don't think it was a single person that didn't. And Which is a testament to, I suppose, what service they thought they, they were getting from you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the thing is that there was a competition just around the corner. Well, there's competition. This is the thing. This is what people need to understand if they're not from a football background. We need to say this, right? It's saturated with choice. It's not like jiu-jitsu where there's a handful of places to train. Still a lot of choice. But football, you literally could go to any field in Leeds on a Saturday morning, take your kid, and they can play football. I so, get it for free. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that 100 people decided to move five miles down Kirkstall Road they must have felt that either you were doing it so cheaply, which you probably weren't, or the quality of the coaching was a different level. And that, that is the case. Yeah, yeah, a combination of, of both factors. I think there was, there's always been an emphasis, you know, from ABC, and obviously we'll get into the Catalan stuff and, and, and pad that out for, for the listeners. There was always a huge premium placed on relationship capital with the children. So, so at that time... I could have told you every single kid's favourite football team, you know, whether they'd ever been to watch Leeds United play. I could have probably told you the favourite superhero character. The, the, the depth of, of and the emphasis on relationship building um, was at the forefront. And yeah, we, we were sort of four quid and we were still, I think, four quid. I think maybe it went to five quid when we went to goals and we got like £1.50 per kid and... 10 quid for every 14 kids. You know, there was, there was an arrangement there hmm. that was, uh, which was a, a deal that we made at the time for the usage. But yeah, I think, um, I think I probably didn't, I didn't take any security or confidence in the depth of those relationships that we'd built. And I just took it for granted that your, your kid could probably just make those relationships anywhere. Like I didn't probably appreciate at the time when there was anxiety around this, how many people would come with us without even sort of batting an island and pay more money? Mm. So it, there was a lot of insecurity around that decision, and it was the first gamble that the, the fledgling business had, had taken. Mm. And everyone came, and it was just a matter of them keeping them. And there was no monthly subscription. There was no annual or you know quarterly term fees. It was. It, it's a bit. I think when you run a business on sort of you know turn up and pay. I mean, I can definitely empathise with people that run a restaurant or cafe, for example. You know, you, you open up the shop on the morning. You, 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 you don't hope have any bodies. Yeah, literally, you, you don't know if people are going to turn up. Yeah. And, you know, the, the business model now has 
has evolved and changed, and it's a you know, term subscription which gives us three, four months of certainty. And um, you only have to deal with that uncertainty a few cycles per year, but, and, but you can plan and anticipate for it. But then, obviously, as your systems improve, you've got data to rely on and you start to see trends. At the time, it's like, look, we're going to move these people and ask them to pay more, and we don't even have them tied in in any way whatsoever. So it was huge. And then the first week, you know, like the, the 55 kids that you had, they all turn up, and a few more. Hmm. So we actually grew into that, that first And you were step. ABC still when you went to ABC goals. still. So just to, you know, I'll talk to you the, the, the overlap here between the two brands because it wasn't like a, you know, a transition, um, a black and white transition. It mm. was, there was an overlap where Catalan existed at the same time as ABC. And after running ABC there for a while, I think it was about 18 months, 2012, I think was the first Catalan session, 2000, 2012, because we launched it off the back, and this covers your question, why Catalan? We launched it off the back of the third Spanish victory. It was in the Euro 2012. Right. So they'd won back to back to back. They'd done 2008 Euros, 2010 World okay. Cup, and then 2012. Right. I think they didn't smash it, was it? four or five nil in the final mm. of that competition. And um, obviously it was the pep effect, wasn't it? It was Xavi, Iniesta, Fabregas. Those guys just running riot and just steamrolling the opposition. So we launched Catalan off the back of that. So ABC existed as the Saturday morning club. And then what we had, what we found was that some of the eight and nine year olds, the, the ABC brand, not, not that it was unsuitable, but it wasn't cool. Yeah, it's Very a bit big. kind of building block. It's still foundational, like you talked before, right? Yeah, it, it was a little bit... Um, it just wasn't cool to sell. And what we found is that the, the inquiries that we were getting from people after they looked at the website that that self-built and stuff in the brand, it, we were getting a lot of four to sevens, hmm. which, is, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but what we found is that some of the eight- and nine-year-old groups we were sort of running at half capacity and we weren't attracting, there was the odd bit of word of mouth, but we weren't attracting any kind of volume for that age group. So been inspired by the Spanish blueprint or the, the Catalan blueprint, which, you know, for your listeners is um, a part of Spain, Catalonia, Barcelona is in that, is in that part of the country. Um, and Pep Guardiola, who is a Catalan coach, was coaching a team of, predominantly Spanish footballers with Leo Messi thrown in there for, for good measure. And um, a lot of them were Catalan. So you got Pique, Puyol, the defenders. You had Xavi. You had um, Jordi Alba. I think he made an appearance later on. But it was a huge Catalan influence. So I, I was gobsmacked at the time that Brazilian soccer school, you know, um, was pretty much a global sensation as, as a soccer franchise. I was looking around and I just couldn't believe that there wasn't a Spanish soccer school. You know, we were into sort of the fourth, fifth year of dominance and the Spanish team and Pep Guardiola through, through the success of the Barcelona sort of blueprint had just taken football into a completely new realm. Mm. Number of passes completed, number of passes below head height, all possession statistics, amount of time on the ball, you know, the f fewer transitions starving the opposition 
um, you know, off the ball, starving them for creative and attacking opportunities, and just the strategy of death by a thousand cuts. You know, so no one pass kills you, but, the, but a thousand passes just beat you into submission. Um, and, and that's that. It was just inspirational. We, we, for anyone that was watching football around that time, it was it was a revolution, really, um, and a completely new new blueprint. So there was a romance and poetry about the football style that, that I was seeing, and the Catalan soccer school was a, was a tribute to what I felt was um, it was it was a revolution. Nothing short of a revolution, really. And you still see that echoed through in. Pep Guardiola's teams of today. Yeah. And it's pretty standard today that even Stoke or Hull, West Brom, you know, possession, ball control, um, mastery is is now just a part of how you approach well, the game. Well, back then the England game was long ball, right? It was like boot it, you know, massive guy up front and then these guys changed the game. All those plays you talked about were, you know, five, six, five, seven, you know, were yeah. just masters at this craft, yeah. right? I, I, think, I think the Man City team a couple of years ago was the lowest average height of, of any Premier League team. You've got like David Silva, hmm. Gundogan, you've got all, Aguero's not that tall, Sterling. You've got these little guys. And again, there was, there was something romantic about that as well. You've got just these little David guys Goliath that are just smarter than everybody else. Yeah. You know, and I think probably linking that back to my own childhood and, you know, trying to, you know, climb and, and pull yourself through all those barriers of physical bias against you. Things stacked against the little guy just through the playing formats and selections and stuff. And seeing all the big kids get the fairest crack of the whip. There was something that resonated in the whole thing. So, um, yeah, so that that's how the Catalan thing started. So we started to do Saturday afternoon sessions, which we called Skills Academy for the older kids, and sort of dreamt up the brand got some intellectual property on it. Again, astounded that there was no Spanish or Catalan trademarks in place. You know, did the research on IP, figured out what we needed to do to, to um, trademark the badge and the name, just so we didn't invest in something which could then be sort of, you know, a rug pulled from beneath us and just launched a few, yeah, the few sort of eight to 10 year old sessions. And, you know, I can tell you more about that longer transition, but, Essentially, Catalan soccer just became such a strong brand. Tuesday nights, Friday nights, Saturday afternoons, that the ABC sessions became Catalan soccer's ABC. Right. So, mm. you know, Catalan do ABC sessions. You know, the parent says, well, what's ABC? We say, look, fundamental sessions, high number of ball touches, very open, inclusive um, environment, you know, with, with no oppression, no bullying, no stigma attached to mistakes, you know, uh, an environment for, for opportunity for self-correction and all the things that are absolutely critical for young people to develop and learn, I think, in any subject. And so the ABC, almost like we hit the reset button on it and it came into the Catalan brand and then the Catalan one just sort of grew and grew. I think at the time I had to see, I had to make a decision and not put all the eggs in one basket, but it was just two brands, two businesses, mixed message. And, um, yeah, we just thought at the time, it was like, Colin, my dad actually had the idea to. He said, "Look, we, sh we should just make this Catalan," which which we did. Right, and then from from then, how did Catalan grow to what it is now? Well, it was you know, it was incremental growth, just sort of steady growth um, around this time. I've definitely got to 
attribute some of the success to to the the family members that I got involved because it's although it was I was the football coach, I was the one who was um, who sacrificed my entire twenties essentially to get this thing up and running. My brother was still in a job; he was at a bank. Ben, older brother, was in a job at Champion Soccer doing league coordinating at the time. Um, my dad had moved back from Southampton. So he was doing coaching stuff with me. But um, that, that was the multiplier. So we essentially just kept doing a great job every single week. And, and I think just treating every single session like it could be a last because we were still on that model of turn up and pay. And, you know, you're only as good as your last fight, you know, or you're only as good as your last game. And that applies to referee, football teams, jiu-jitsu fighters, anyone yep. with an unbeaten record, you're only as good and you can very quickly go from number one contender or champion of the world to someone who doesn't even get a title shot. So I always had that attitude and it was a, probably a healthy paranoia and fear of collapse. It was a big driver there. You know, you've still got the aspirational element of what you want this to be and what you want it to, to do for people and the relationships that you want to be... Um, to happen and to be born from what you're doing, but just absolutely terrified of having a bad session, you know, mm. terrified of not being prepared, just being embarrassed if parents turn up and still be putting cones down in front of them, almost feeling like you know, you're exposed in front of people. Um, so, so there was, again, lots of other motivational and psychological factors at play, but it was essentially continuing to do the best possible job we possibly could continuing to bring fun, innovation, value, excellent customer service, putting relationship building at the forefront of absolutely everything, managing every single child's mistake to their advantage at every given opportunity, finding the right balance of feedback and critique, coaching methods, teaching methods, just making people feel important. And yeah. that, that's parents, carers, grandparents. Mm. Um, you know, to this very day, um, the coaches that work at Catalan Soccer, you know, the session begins when the first car drives into the car park because we, those parents expect them to be at the door of the pitch waving to the kid and, and that's where the experience starts. It's not when the first ball is kicked or when the first bid goes on. It, it, it's how you greet and how, how you arrived and um, that first bit of banter or the first friendly joke that you get within five, ten seconds of stepping out the car. Yeah, and that's where it begins. And so it was just this ruthless, systematic focus on relationships and people and having a, a positive environment. And, and it, just, it just grew. Hmm. The inquiry just came in, word of mouth, everybody telling everyone that they knew this was the place to take your kids. So I've spoken about it recently um, to my um, professor, uh, Victor, and said, like, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that what we're doing here is developing people first and using jiu-jitsu as a tool to do that. And here you're talking about that. You know, it's about the child having fun and developing them as, as young people. And the vehicle for that is the football, right? So it doesn't start with the football. It doesn't start on the mat. It starts how we speak to our little champions when they walk through the door. It speaks to how you greet your children when they come to camps or they come to classes, right? It's just a tool we're using, but ultimately it's about doing the right thing and being a good influence to them, right? And at the height of, obviously we've had a pandemic to deal with, but the height of Catalan membership, are you able, are you comfortable saying like where you were in terms of numbers? If we start at yeah. ABC at none. Yeah, cool. So, so we started with, you know, three three kids that paid and seven kids that I dragged off the street to come you know, come and make a five-a-side game. Um, the, the biggest that we've we've been 
if you just want to look at that, that, that metric is is a thousand. Um, and we got we got cut short in March on on the first pandemic. A thousand kids a week. Yeah, a thousand kids a week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's just staggering. Yeah. It's absolutely staggering. Uh, I mean, do you know of any soccer schools that are bit bigger than that? I, I'm not sure that there's any single site soccer schools. I mean there is um, you know, not anyone who runs a soccer school I've got great respect for. So I understand the challenges and and, and the difficulties that it so I'm happy to mention these guys. But I think Pro Football Academy, I think they're more of a satellite, multi-city, sort of source local coaches and run at, you know, sort of remote venues. They've got a model that I think they, they're probably bigger than us in terms of raw numbers. Um, Brazilian soccer school, again, franchise model, little kickers, franchise model. But in terms of, you know, I, I, I can watch, I, I could be at the front door of Catalan and see a thousand kids come through and I'll know the names of 950 of them. And, yeah. and that is unique. You're not, you're not going to... Yeah. You know, I don't put my head on, on the, it's absolutely on the block here, but I, I, I struggle I struggle to believe that there's anywhere because the Goal Soccer Centre the there is the they biggest one be. in the country. I find it impossible. They, they can't be. I, and, I, I, and that's the story that I wanted to be able to tell on here, you know, about... Because we bring it back to that dreaming big thing. You know, when we talk about... Let's, let's not call it 12 years, let's call it a decade, right? If someone's life... That's not a long time when we're here for 80, 90 years. And you can build something. Well, not everyone, because that does you a disservice. But people are able to build a business from three kids to a 1,000 kids a week. And, you know, we need to talk the numbers there, but you can imagine the revenue there and then the potential to employ other people and give them lives, which I know you've done, you know, and help people to develop as well. That's staggering, isn't it? It's absolutely massive. You know, we're talking about wanting to be, I talk about wanting to be the most successful Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academy in the UK. What, I don't know what the numbers are. 350, 400 people as members a month. And we're talking 1,000 a week. Crazy. Well, um, that takes us almost running up to 90 minutes, which kind of feels like a fitting place to, uh, to end the podcast for about football and that kind of thing. Well, I just wanted to kind um, of say this. So, you know, we're, we're going to jump off a cliff there if we finish it there. You know, it feels well, like this yeah. conversation could go for a long time. I was going to say, Matt, if you wanted to come and do a part two of this, that might be a, a cool thing to yeah, do. I'd, I'd love to do that. I mean, is there anything that you wanted to Well, all I wanted to say was I think I want people to know that, you know, Matt was very influential in my decision to leave my old career um, because I respect you very much for being a coach and obviously a good friend of mine. And it's when I, you know, I've always admired people who, because myself, you know, we talk about that office space thing. Even though the job I did was, it wasn't in an office. It was, the, it's the opposite of that. But I was very institutionalized and to leave that was tough. You know, even though I knew deep down inside, I was capable of something different and building a Catalan soccer um, it took people like Matt and my friend Steve to kind of give me the confidence deep inside to to kind of make that leap. So I always thank you for that kind of on the record. And um, and what you've done for my son as well and for all those thousands of kids because that's what we sometimes forget and that we need to remember. You know, it's, it's the influence you're able to have on those people, the positive influence. That's a thousand young people in Leeds who every single week have something to look forward to um, and a coach to to have a role model um, for them. And that's, that's, again, is staggering. So I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to this story. We definitely need to do a part two. Um, but if, if the message the message to take away from this is, as we keep harping on about, there's no limits to what you can achieve, provided you put the work in, right? 
and do the right thing by people. I, I agree. I think everyone has everyone has a different potential for things. There are certainly elements of yourself which will lend themselves to different types of success. Um, essentially, I think success, you've got to define what that is for you. I think once you've defined what success looks like, then you have a North Star and then you move toward the North Star and you know how close you get, you know, will will differ. I've certainly had some, um, again, some, some multipliers in my life, whether it be the support of family that have ended up doing full-time coaching jobs that have allowed us to scale, having people, finding people around you that you can trust and depend on and who share your vision or believe in your vision. You know, there's that disciple factor where you, you need proponents and people to get your message out and believe in it because I can't coach a thousand kids a week. However, the way you go about your business and the way that you wear your heart on your sleeve and I think when you, as a business person or as, you know, sort of a, a professional or whatever you want to call yourself, I think I think it, it's infectious, you know, I think, and what you've got to try and do is you've got to, it's, it's not by talking about things that, you know, it's going to sort of persuade and change people's beliefs or to make them believe in you. It's, it's people seeing you act and people will then follow, you know, your actions. And I've got some great people around me that I couldn't do it without. And um, I think people are going to be listening to the podcast for different reasons. It might be just because they're, they're interested in jujitsu and have no interest in my story whatsoever, um, which is, again, it's fine. Some people might be thinking of starting their own business or, jumping out of a job and again there's barriers around that but I think um, I think excuses you know I think we've all got excuses and some of them are probably carry more sort of weight than others whether it be you know, kids or married life or you know financial constraints or what, whatever in whatever way you are sort of upended um, but I just think in this day and age with freedom of information with your ability to find out anything learn anything you want, self-teach, how to do a podcast, how to design a website, how to start a business, CRM systems off the shelf. Um, you can pretty much give yourself a university education in anything for free with, with the information age that we live in. Um, and I think people that are willing to listen to podcasts in the spare time whilst they do the washing up and you know download the audio books and get those, assimilate that information and and bet themselves whilst they're driving the kids to school. Um, all that fan time that we've now got and, and the information resource that we've got. Um, I think it's a great time to, to try and achieve anything, whether it be your own business or whether it's you know, reading about jujitsu before your first class. Or um, So I think the opportunity is there. And I think you owe it to yourself if you do see some potential, whether it's the inner child that was good at maths that could be a top accountant one day or whether it's you know, a guy who's quite charismatic and good at football who has got some of the character traits to go and share that with a thousand kids. Um, I think you've got to explore it because, again, just to sort of closing thoughts on this, I think, you know, when, when interviewed in sort of the late stages of life, I think people regret what they don't do or what they haven't done rather than what they have done. And you've got to be able to live with yourself. You know, when you're thinking you could have been that jiu-jitsu school owner or you could have gone and learned how to do jiu-jitsu, I think you've, you've got a, an obligation to yourself. You're only here once. And I think, um, I think you've got to explore these things. I think we, we've all got to sort of count the privilege that we've got in this country and in the Western world in general 
I think there's opportunity to go out and do it. There's loans, there's lots of money around in this part of the world, whether it be an investor, whether it be a hundred quid job grant, you know, whether it be um, some of the kickstart schemes for young people to go and find employment now um, that, that's subsidising you know, companies to take them on. There's opportunity there, and I think it's the attitude toward opportunity. Um, I think you've got to tell yourself that you can, you can do things and let go of the excuses. And you've got to start on you. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Mm-hmm. You've got to go and do First it. First step, isn't it, in the journey? Absolutely. Well, um, definitely have you back on. Tell you, you talk told a lot about your journey, but I'd love to hear more of your just like thoughts and stuff as well. Um, so until then, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. See you guys.